Well, good morning. Today's, uh, today we're going to continue our study in First Peter. The, uh, the uh, scripture that Pastor Lynn read is what we'll be looking at today. Um, so, um, by way of refresher, since it's been a while, I'd like to just kind of briefly do a recap of what we looked at already in uh, the first half of chapter 2. In chapter 1 of this epistle, we saw Peter's encouragement to the exiles of the dispersion that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire due to heavy persecution by the Emperor Nero, mostly in, in what is considered modern-day Turkey. These pilgrims migrated into strange lands under various rules of government away from their homelands, and in many cases subject to the influences of the pagan uh, societies and the influence that they had on the rule of law. In chapter 1, Peter encouraged these, encourages, encouraged these believers by reminding them of their standing in Christ, delivering a message of hope, and compelling them to look beyond their present dark circumstances, and to look forward to the hope that is promised in the word of God and, and the return of Christ reminding them that they were chosen by God. Even in their suffering, he brought to light their calling to live holy lives in the face of adversity. When they suffered, they were to endure with joy, knowing that they were suffering for Christ. James 1.2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Right out of the gate, Peter begins with one of the most challenging aspects of our Christian walk, submission. It's, it is vital that we gain a proper perspective of what the Word of God has to say about this topic, especially as we move into chapter 3, where this principle is applied to our lives in a much more personal and sensitive area in our society today specifically in marriage and the relationship between husbands and wives. Regardless of where, when, and how it's applied, the word of God stands true and unchanging. If we are obedient, he will be glorified. In the second half of chapter 2, Peter begins to provide practical advice on how this is possible. But before we look at our text for today, I'd like to call your attention to verses 11 and 12 of verse of, uh, of the uh, verse one, where we left off previously. Peter sets the tone for what we'd be looking at today. First Peter chapter two, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As advice we should strive to apply to our lives today. Amen? So let's get started. Verse 13. Be subject or in some, uh, some translations may 
uh, be to submit um, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Peter admonishes the readers to submit themselves to various relationships in their lives. Uh, first, the laws of our government um, in verses 13 through 17, and as servants, or what would be uh, comparable would be our places of employment, as we'll look at later, in verses 18 through 20, to Christ himself in verses 21 through 25, and to marriage, as we will see when we moved in, move into chapter 3. The deeper our understanding of this idea of submission, the better we will be able to see God's purpose for it in the marriage relationship. The idea of submission to authority was not uncommon in the teaching of the New Testament. We see a similar passage by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, and I'll read that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment, for the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God and the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of of conscience. Be, to be subject means uh, submissive, to be submissive to authority. The Greek, uh, it implies obedience to that same authority. The word in Greek is hupotasso, and it means to arrange under, to subordinate oneself and to obey. It's a military term meaning to arrange it was used in the Old Testament as a military term, uh, meaning to arrange in military fashion under the commander. One question that comes to mind is who is ultimately in command? In most cases, the government will tell you that they are. Every large human institution has an organizational chart of some sort detailing the hierarchy within that institution. Many of you here work for the federal government or a contract corporation, so, so you are familiar with the flowchart structure. There's always one big box at the top identifying who's ultimately in charge and a series of branches off that that trickle down to the one who's at the bottom of the list. Even the individual at the top box answers to someone somewhere, somehow. The bottom of these flowcharts has a definite end, but the top one is a little less obvious. 
it fails to project high enough to provide a true perspective of the definite end at the top of that command hierarchy. Who will ultimately answer to? To God himself. As Paul points out in verse 1 of the previous text we read in Romans 13, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. A sentiment echoed in, in, in the text we're looking at today by Peter. Since it is a military term, those of you who have served in the military or currently serving, understand that this idea of submitting to an order is generally required and, not only, and, and only goes one way, up the chain of command. You receive an order from a superior officer, you obey and execute, provided it's a lawful order, a concept that applies to our walk in the Lord as well. We willingly obey for the Lord's sake, as it says at the, in verse 13. It pleases God when we contribute to the ordered structure of the society we live in. He is sovereign in every circumstance of our lives even when our obedience brings suffering and persecution. We don't always understand why God allows these circumstances into our lives, but our obligation is to trust in his sovereign will and be obedient to his word, which will result in glory to him and bring blessing upon us. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, a woman in the crowd of people shouted, Blessed is the womb, speaking to Jesus as he was speaking, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which you nursed. But Jesus' reply to her was, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Peter qualifies the limits of our obedience. He says to every human institution. So there's a point at which we may be required to refuse to submit. That point is when our obedience will result in the violation of God's law causing us to sin and offense to him. The COVID epidemic brought us all closer to that point of decision than we have ever been before, both individually and corporately as a church. Laws and restrictions were put in place that caused us to make some tough decisions regarding our livelihood and our corporate worship of the Lord. Scripture points out that there is a limit to our submission to human institutions. We look in the book of Exodus. When, Pharaoh, when the Pharaoh of Egypt feared, um, was fearful of the growing population of the captive Jews, he ordered the Jewish midwives to kill all male newborns. Verse 17 of Exodus 1 says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. As he, as he commanded them, but let the male children live. So God dealt with them with, with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So we see how our obedience to the word of God 
brings, can bring blessing to us and glorify God. It pleases him when we are obedient to his word and follow his ways. In Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, uh, the, uh, the apostles, Peter was speaking and speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. And uh, uh, they called later, they were called, Jew, uh, Peter and John were both called before the Jewish council. And the Jewish council in, uh, uh, said that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. Um, and they answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In verse 24, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Praise the Lord for the word of God that drills into our hearts an unquenching desire to share and to proclaim that no matter what the consequences are. A similar uh, situation uh, occurred in Acts chapter 5. Peter and the apostles once again were, were, were arrested and thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. God miraculously freed them, and they went right back to preaching. They were brought again before the Jewish council, all of them, and questioned and admonished against uh, continuing to preach the gospel. Their reply in verse 29 we must obey God rather than man. Order and structure are vital to a civil society. Without it, there would be, there would be chaos and anarchy. God is both pleased and honored when we subject ourselves to the laws of that civil society. We should be careful not to think that this type of order is solely to keep sin at bay. Order is part of God's character. We see that there is order in the heavenly realm as well. There is order among the sinless angels. First, First Thessalonians 4.16 says that for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We see, we see it regarding the redeemed in heaven. In, in, in Jude 1, verse 9, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. So he recognized who was the righteous judge. He didn't overstep that boundary, but he, so there is order. We see it in creation. We see it in so many different areas of scripture from the beginning to the end. There is order within the Trinity itself. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So we see that structure again. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection 
under him, that God may be all in all. <clears throat> Order was established from the very beginning. It is displayed in the creation account of the book of Genesis. We will explore that further when we dig in to chapter 3. I know we camped out on this a bit, but I think it's so important that we have a well-informed decision and perception of what this idea of submission is as we move forward. Back to our text. So we see that we are to submit, and we do it for the Lord's sake, because he is pleased when we are obedient. Verse The second half of 13 and verse 14 whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Peter then begins to whittle this concept down to a point that begins to hit a little bit closer at home. Personally, I kind of felt a little bit of a twinge of conviction when I saw the word governor. That's because I live in California. I imagine some of you may have had the same reaction. This act of submitting to authority that, has placed in, that he has placed in our midst is all-encompassing. It applies to us as believers from the federal government level right down into our very homes. We don't have the right to pick and choose who is worthy of our cooperation, no matter how difficult it is This is God's sovereign will for us. Any abuse of the authority that has been placed in the hands of these political leaders as a result of their sinful tendencies and the the influences of the society at large falls on them. Ultimately, God, the just judge, will deal with them. We are only responsible for our response we must still lift them up in prayer, regardless of how much we disagree with them or the decisions they make that is commanded of us by the word of God. Not always easy, but it's a command we have to follow. In Matthew 5, verses 44 through 48, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Now there's a challenge. And pray for those who persecute you, an additional challenge. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It may not be completely attainable for us, but we must be on that path to strive for everything that the scriptures contain for us and to fulfill God's perfect will for our lives, no matter what the cost. And the most difficult part at times is to love our enemies but that isn't but isn't that the fullest expression of the grace of God 
and a way to witness the goodness of God. Continuing on, verse 14 says, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Our obedience to the laws of the land are generally put into place for our benefit to serve as a deterrent for those who disregard them, as well as recognize those who rightfully obey the law. There are good and and bad aspects of the justice system God has placed in our midst. Societal norms were different back then, and the treatment of these believers would be considered harsh by modern standards. Regardless of the circumstances we experience, our response to it remains timeless. We must determine to apply these same principles to our lives today. The encouraging words Peter writes to these first century believers still rings true for us today. Moving on, why should we submit? Verse 15 says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We should have as our first desire to glorify God and to fulfill his will in our lives. Sometimes that means that we are compelled to do what we are compelled to do can be difficult. But by our obedience, we can share the gospel through our actions as well as our words. Many accusations and rumors were leveled against these believers during this difficult time in their lives. They were looked at with great suspicion, and the rumors about their conduct were rampant. The motives behind the believers' right conduct were not well understood among the pagan societies that they were coexisting with, or that even the Jewish leaders, um, because they had little to no understanding of true godly conduct. The believers were being strengthened to continue their good conduct so that they might display the grace of the gospel and put to rest the suspicions that they were under. Verse 16 of our text Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or bond slaves of God. There's a great paradox in this verse. First, Peter tells them to live as people who are free. Then at the end of the verse, he tells them to live as servants of God. These believers as we all are, regardless of our worldly status, are truly free. We have been freed by Christ from the bondage of our past sins and released by means of a new birth to a new life on a spiritual plane which is in a different realm from that of the natural order. We are free to serve the Lord with complete submission and obedience to Christ resulting in complete freedom of our spirits. With liberty, with this liberty, this liberty of freedom that we have comes responsibility. They were warned against abusing that liberty as an excuse for committing evil acts. In Galatians 5, chapter thir- or, uh, verse 13, we read where it says, You were called to freedom, brothers, 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. We are bond slaves to Christ because he has purchased our freedom with his precious blood. Since they and we now belong to God as bondservants, we have an obligation to carry out his will. So our obedience in this effort is a fulfillment of his perfect will in our lives, one of the fulfillments. William Barclay said, Christian freedom does not mean bring, being free to do as we like. It means we are free to do as we ought. Quite a profound statement, I believe, on his part. Looking on to verse 17, it says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. This verse shows that we should have a general respect for all people, a deeper, more abiding love for other believers, a healthy and reverent fear of God because he holds our eternity in his hands. Fear is only applied to our relationship with God, not to man. We have nothing to fear from man. What can they do to us? But God holds our eternity in his hands. It also places our view of the emperor or the president, I guess, in modern-day vernacular, in, in our case, on the same level as everyone. Did you notice that? The, you know, um, he just kind of equalized a playing field, and, and there's a specific reason for that, I believe. Um, um, uh, pardon me. A healthy and reverent fear of God because he holds our eternity in his hands. Fear is only applied to our relationship with God, not man. It also places our view of the emperor or the president on the same level as everyone to show due honor. In the first century, the emperors were considered divine in status, but the believers would never grant him that status. But they were encouraged to show due honor. Christians have obligations to the state but their obligations to God and to the brotherhood of believers are higher. How do we submit? What does this look like? Verses 18 through 21 reads, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you are good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The word here used, the word servants used here is a, is a different word. It's a, a oikates, and, it, and the definition for that is one who lives in the same house as another, spoken of all who are under the authority of one and the same householder. In other words, it's a reference to a domestic worker within a, within a home. 
or a domestic servant. Many of the exiles Peter, Peter is encouraging had to provide for themselves and their families. Because of their social status in the Roman Empire, this meant that often they were employed as servants in households, more than likely under the rule of a pagan, a pagan masters. Roman law provided some protection for these servants, but it was minimal at best, and in any case, the treatment of these house servants could be considered harsh. Let's just say it was no Downton Abbey. The fortunate ones had masters that treated them fairly under the existing laws. Regardless of the situation, Peter's exhortation to them was the same. They were compelled to conduct themselves in a manner consistent with their faith as believers in Christ, being mindful in every way that they must strive to display the grace of God to those they were accountable to. They were well aware of, of the unjust treatment that Christ had endured prior to his crucifixion. This was their example to follow. Suffering as a result of their own bad behavior was one thing, but suffering unjustly for doing the right thing in God's eyes was pleasing to God and brought glory to him. They were to treat their situation as a daily opportunity to witness by bearing up, as Jesus did, under every grade of persecution, from the small injustices to the actual bodily harm. This is the attitude to which they have been called and the example that they are to follow. Paul said in Romans 8, verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. C.H. Spurgeon had a very profound thing to say about this. He said, Mark then, Christian, Jesus does not suffer so as to exclude your suffering. He bears a cross, not that you may escape it, but that you may endure it. Christ exempts you from sin, but not from sorrow. Remember that and expect to suffer. Another question we should ask ourselves, is our submission Christ-like? Are we reflecting what the example that Christ had given us? In this portion of scripture, Peter intermingles portions of Isaiah 53 into his final um, writing to these believers. Verse 23 is entirely from Isaiah 53. Other, other verse 24, um, uh, there's, there's two locations in verse, verse uh, 24 where he quotes uh, the prophet Isaiah in 53, and then again in verse 25. Perhaps you'll, be, you'll, you'll recognize these verses. Verse 20 through, uh, 22 through 25. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He suffered, 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24, he gave, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Peter points out that Christ committed no sins, yet he did not return his mistreatment with reviling or anger. That should be our pattern when we are mistreated, and whatever the circumstance, we should not respond in anger. His faith and trust were directed towards God, who is a just judge, as theirs should be. He suffered and died to set them free so that they would know the blessing of complete spiritual freedom, that their eternal hope was secure, that even though they were exiles and pilgrims in a strange land, and exposed to suffering and persecutions. Through faith in Christ alone, they were, they were safe in the hands of their shepherd and overseer of their souls. What an encouragement to them and to us today as well. So how do we, how do we apply that to our lives today? What do we take away from this? How can we move forward in our Christian walk and exemplify what the scripture has, the example that, that Christ had gave us and the words and encouragement that Peter was expressing to these exiles and believers under, in, in many ways, the same sort of circumstances that we face today, the struggles that we have in our society. Not completely a perfect image, but we still have these same struggles. We should look at the word of God and realize that the word of God is for all of us, for all time. Don't let the opinions and attitudes of the world influence our conduct. We can endeavor to submit first and foremost to Christ and his word. Submission starts and ends with him. Strive, we can strive to be a model citizen and an employee, proclaiming the gospel through our actions and our words. We can pursue humility and repent from any pride that we hold on to and any anger that may have a stubborn grip on us in our lives. We can trust in Christ alone for the strength to persevere through the tough times looking to scripture alone for guidance in our daily lives. And finally, we can embrace the eternal spiritual freedom purchased for us by his precious blood. Amen? Amen. All right. I want to first encourage those who may be here that may not know Christ. The Christ that we speak of in the scriptures, the Christ that we look at today, is here for you as well. And I just pray that his Holy Spirit 
will speak to your heart and drive this point of love deeply into you and that I pray that you will have the courage to respond to that call in your life. As we, as we close in prayer, we just uh, thank you for your time here and we ask um, and we hope that it's been a blessing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and so grateful for your grace. Father, we are thankful for your guidance. We are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the example that was set before us in, in, in Christ, Lord, that his precious blood was shed to set us truly free. Lord, that we might be free to obey. Father, help us, give us strength to be obedient to your word, and to live our lives in a way that's consistent with the example that you have set for us, Father. I pray that our love in this fellowship and our love as a brotherhood of believers, Lord, would grow and strengthen. Father, that your church would be strengthened and that the gospel would be proclaimed with power and with courage, Lord, and with efficacy, Father, that others would hear the the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be transformed in their lives, repent of their sins and turn to you for eternal life. Father, we are so grateful for all that we have, for the blessings that you are to us. And we are most thankful, Lord, for the sacrifice that was made for us on the cross at Calvary. And we pray all of this in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. Amen.